Welcome to this week's episode of The Modern Good. I'm your host, Busy Gold. Conscious construction starts right now. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of The Modern Good. We're doing things a little bit differently today because I have a guest in the studio, which is actually delightful because technology and I then don't have to fight the entire time. One of the things that I was immediately really impressed by was obviously not just your background academically, but the spin or take you have on a field that for many of us from the outside looking in can feel very like structured and rigid and not necessarily something that has a ton of organic evolution. It feels like if anything, because the field of science is science, it just kind of has this connotation that somehow it's just more rigid. So when I heard some of the things that you were talking about and thinking about, I just got really excited that even people like you exist? Because I think sometimes from the outside looking in, we forget that scientists can have this very broad spiritual perspective and a deep understanding of the energetic or intangible world. So as soon as I started to hear about that and I heard about what you were doing, I immediately was like, one day I have to have her on the show. So I'm going to let Zan or Alexandra actually introduce what her background is officially because I will completely butcher it on my end. But... um, I brought her on specifically to help shed some light on how the realm of science functions that many of us might be operating under preconceived notions or you know, we think we know how it operates because we've seen it talked about in a movie. I wanted to have Zan actually express what her experience has been, both the good and the bad, where the limitations are, where there's a lot of room for growth so that we can all start to understand the system a little bit more through her eyes. So what is your background in sciences or research sciences that I would butcher if I tried to save them off of your paper? Well, I think the place to start is that I didn't actually study science in my undergraduate degree. I went to Harvard and I didn't really want to be there at the time. And so I studied religion and creative writing and sort of made it into a spiritual retreat as much as possible. Wow. (laughs) The Harvard spiritual retreat. They didn't even know they had. They didn't know. And as I was doing that, I developed my imagination a lot uh, because I was writing fiction. And so I learned how to stretch my own capacity to imagine and create things that didn't exist. And I think that that was actually a really valuable skill that I've taken with me because it gave me a lot of freedom to think for myself. And then after that, I, through a series of personal experiences, ended up completely changing what I was doing and started studying plant sciences and did some research in that area, understanding ecosystem physiology and how carbon and nitrogen are cycled through the environment and how these things are affected by things like deforestation. And then after that, I pursued a PhD at NYU in molecular and genetic toxicology, which is an area of research where you're looking at toxicants and how they enter into the cell and lead to the events that produce cancer. And this 
kind of opened my eyes to all kinds of things that were happening in the world that I had no idea about and kind of brought a lot of fear at the beginning. And I had to really learn how to manage that and study this at the same time because I was thinking about cancer all the time and how it forms. And I started to do, within that, you start, start to make your own special specialization. And so I was looking at data analysis and large-scale data sets in response to gene expression changes induced by toxins. And as I was looking at that data, I felt like it was just too much information. And I was just wondering kind of how are we going to actually implement this information into the world? What, how is it that it's actually usable? And so I started to think critically about what I was being taught and how, how we were approaching this problem. And I started to step back from it. And that led me into looking at biophysical properties of cells and conceptualizing them that way. And then, and then that abstracted even more. And in my postdoc, I was studying pure mathematics and looking at really abstract ways of seeing the world through things like algebraic topology. My brain melted. <laughs> there were a lot of words in there. There the, were. You, you're so smart. That sounds really super hyper intelligent. And it, it sounds like maybe to give it like a layman's spin on it, I think what you're saying is as you went in thinking that you wanted to study something, you consistently found that you almost had to like shift and expand your thinking to even see that thing, which I think is part of what I wanted to go into with today's line of questioning, which is really talking about the impact of cognitive entrenchment when you're so close to something that you actually can't think or see your way out of it anymore. So I think this is one of the reasons that I was so drawn to have you on the show is that you have an acute awareness of when that's happening. And instead of bumping into cognitive dissonance and getting triggered and actually staying even more stuck, you continue to kind of pivot and expand. Do you think, is that something that happened naturally or was there a specific moment where you realized like, hold on, I'm bumping into something and I, I need to shift my way of thinking to find an answer? I think I've always been this way to a large extent. I was the kid in kindergarten who, when the teacher showed us half of an apple, I raised my hand and said, that's not exactly half. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And then when I was 11, I had a strange illness where I was just dizzy all the time for months. And they took me to doctor after doctor and tried to diagnose me. And they couldn't figure anything out. And then they took me to a psychiatrist. And the psychiatrist decided that I was making it up. Oh, that's fun. Luckily, my mom didn't believe that, and she <laughs> took me to a holistic chiropractor who tested me for food sensitivities, and three days off of those foods, and I was 100% better. And so I think that was one of the first moments where I really saw what a paradigm was and saw that you can have a very limited perception if you only think about something through one lens but that there are other lenses and other ways of seeing things that can offer more perspective. And so those experiences were always in the back of my mind. And then in high school, I debated. Uh, that was kind of my sport. And I had a really amazing debate coach who taught me how to see paradigms, essentially. And I always just started to analyze things, I think, in a different way after that training. 
And was the training to effectively see what paradigm they were operating in so that you could see the easiest way to poke a hole in their current thinking? Or how did they coach you to use the paradigm for the purposes of debate? Well, there, there was one time where we were driving in a car together and he asked me to explain the difference between freedom and liberty and kind of wouldn't stop driving until I could figure it out. And it took a couple hours. Okay. <laughs> but I think essentially it's about being precise about what words mean mm -hmm. and what the implied value structure is around them and how then because of those values, what larger structures are created in response to them. And so it teaches you to sort of see the whole system so that you can break it down and then poke holes in it. Got it, right. So it is really about kind of being able to see what system that person is stuck thinking in so that you can kind of tactically execute an attack from the outside in. Yeah, so that, more so that you can dismantle it. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Attack, dismantle. I mean, don't we dismantle <laughs> via attack? I know I do. You find the weak spot and you just push as hard as possible until it topples down. I guess I don't see it that way exactly. How do you see it? I see it more that if if it's if there's a paradigm that's composed of a certain structure, if you can identify that structure, then you can kind of take it apart and you don't necessarily have to poke at it, but you can say, okay, this is one boundary of it and this is another boundary of it. And those boundaries create a certain set of ways that we're operating or ways that we're thinking that are limited because they don't have these things in it. So mm -hmm. it's more of an explanation and, and a dismantling. I think I was thinking more in terms of debate specifically, right? Mm -hmm. What's the point of debate, hypothetically? Like, how do you win a debate? Well, it depends what kind of debate you're doing. But in okay. the kind of debate that I did, which was called this called uh, Lincoln-Douglas debate, okay. you had to essentially you set the voting criteria in that, in that debate. So it's not sort of predetermined what the judges vote on. You, you create the criteria and then you argue that your criteria are the correct ones to decide based on. So in that way, you kind of can argue at this paradigm level. Okay, awesome. I think sounds like more debate needs to come to schools in the United States. I think I naturally always gravitated toward debate and having a father that was a lawyer. My dad would kind of really tear even my essays to shreds and would find certain words to be like, if you change this word to that word, what would happen to this paragraph? So I think I just always was in that kind of way of thinking, even to the point of at 19 taking the LSAT for fun one time. Oh, did you? I did quite, quite well quite well. I really, maybe like that should have really been my career, but alas, here we are. So I think when it comes down to this idea of seeing within a paradigm, the paradigm is effectively a, is it, is a paradigm a system of thinking or is it, is it a, a system of rules? How, what are the, how are the edges of a paradigm defined? That's something I've been thinking a lot about recently and thinking about how to articulate that because I think in a lot of ways it's very nebulous and... The definition's extremely general. Yeah. It just says a way of thinking. Right? Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, dictionary. That's very super helpful. helpful. So I'll try to propose something that I think I'll probably want to modify let's, later. Let's go but for it. Yeah, you, just... you can reserve your right to modify later. I think that a paradigm 
has a set of values around which it's oriented. And those values then create the boundaries within which you can, you're sort of allowed to think within the paradigm. And so the way that that happens can happen, the boundaries can kind of come in two ways. One, there's a set of boundaries around, let's say, if you're talking about a scientific discipline, because there's a lot of different paradigms that we could go into, but let's stick with science. The boundary could be a set of topics that are considered part of that paradigm, acceptable within that field of research. But then at a more abstract level, there's also a set of boundaries in terms of the ways that you are allowed to think within that paradigm, allowed to construct ideas, and allowed to evaluate the validity of ideas. And so we could say maybe, for example, that's something like rationality. You know, you have to abide by a rational train of thought. You can't just imagine whatever you want. Or can you? Or so, can you? <laughs> 2023. <laughs> so I think paradigms have a set of values and they have some kind of structure within which ideas operate within that paradigm that becomes uh, codified to a certain extent. Whether or not it's acknowledged or not, there's, a, there's sort of these highways of thought. That's how I see it in a paradigm. And everything ends up following those highways of thought and those ways of moving and those ways of conceptualizing. And when somebody undertakes a research project, for example, do you actually very clearly define or become aware of the paradigm that you're operating under? Is that something that one does in the scope of undertaking a project? Or is it something that you accidentally become aware of down the road? I think most people aren't aware of it at all. And if people did become aware of it prior to starting research, how do you think it would shift their results? I'm not sure. I think that a lot of research happens in spaces that are quite narrow. And I think people value that a lot of times. I'm kind of the opposite. Um, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not really sure what would happen. It's hard. I think a lot of people would just be resistant to it. You know, I think there's a lot of comfort in having a small niche and sticking within that paradigm and not going outside of it. And so I think many people might, might not change what they're doing, even if they were aware of it. Well, I think maybe where I was trying to go with this is, to some extent, not acknowledging what paradigm you are operating in, to some extent, predisposes you toward bias. Do you agree? Definitely. So if you're predisposed toward bias, if there was an actual structure in place where one of the steps was that you had to actually address the paradigm that you are thinking, arguably one of the results would be that you could potentially start to limit bias naturally from guiding or directing how the research itself goes. Potentially, yeah, I think that's possible. What are some ways that people can actually stop themselves and become aware of paradigms that they're operating in? I think the first thing is that it's important to step back from what you're doing and look at the wider picture and see you know, the wider field. So, some, so depending on what that is, it could be just like 
if you're doing research in one area to look at the areas adjacent to you in research and be like, oh, those are connected but not exactly the same. And this is how we're limiting things by looking at it in this way. So I think you know, by stepping back, you can see the limitations of your own perspective. And I think that's the first and probably the most important part of it. I absolutely agree. And I think it segues into one of the topics that I wanted to talk about. So when you look up the actual definition of science, it is the systematic study of the structure and behavior of the physical and natural world through observation, experimentation, and the testing of theories against the evidence obtained. Now, again, I mentioned one of the reasons that I really enjoy your way of thinking and also wanted to have you on the show is, to me, obviously, I operate very much in, in a spiritual paradigm in a lot of ways and try to see where there's overlap or some sort of agreement between the two because I think that it doesn't take much to see that there is in fact something spiritual taking place whether you want to look at that through the lens of quantum physics or what have you. I don't think it's a stretch for a lot of people in today's age to see that there's something else beyond what we can just physically touch and see. So I think when I first started to kind of look into this, do you think that you're already kind of operating at a disadvantage trying to conduct scientific research, not considering the impact or influence of realms that exist beyond just the purely physical or natural? I think that that does create a strong limitation. Um, I'm gonna step out of science to explain that first. Yeah, go for so it. So when I was studying religion, I noticed that when we would discuss God in a text or in the Bible, at the university that I was at, that I was at there was always this feeling of like, God actually isn't real and none of this is real. We're gonna just treat it as a text. Mm -hmm. And so it, it sort of, um, you know, it sterilized it to an extent. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's the perspective that a lot of academic research is approached with, is that we have to be these blank slates somehow, and that that makes us unbiased. But isn't that itself not being a blank slate? Exactly. And not, right? That is itself bias. Right? And so that's the problem, is that there is no blank slate possible, right? Everyone has some position that they're operating from. Everyone believe something about what's beyond the physical reality or they don't. And that affects the way that you conceptualize ideas. It affects how far you're willing to imagine and what ideas you're willing to take into consideration as you go about your work. And so I think it absolutely affects the, the way that things are conceptualized and how abstract people are willing to take those conceptualizations beyond the physical appearance of what a system looks like. So as you were describing that, one of the things that I think might be the easiest example that I can come up with, because I think at this point it's pretty widespread for anyone listening, and I know that this has certainly happened to me and you mentioned it as well, there, I think, you know, time stamping this, it's 2023, there's clear evidence that food sensitivities can impact both physical <laughs> symptoms and mental symptoms, right? Like, 
it, that is not a hard one, and yet many Western medical allopathic doctors will completely deny that there's any validity there and have not in any way adopted that into their medical practice. This to me, and you know, again, I know that you're a scientist and you're, you know, I'm not asking you to generalize or to go outside of your own personal experience. So maybe even just from a personal experience perspective, like how at this point, what would need to be happening for a doctor to still want to flat out deny any sort of, I guess, role that food sensitivity can play in both mental health symptoms and physical symptoms? And in order to deny that, what what would need to be happening mentally for them to just like cut like cut that out and not acknowledge it at this point? Yeah, I think this isn't as a great example, and it's just you know, it's it's hard to believe that this is where we're at still, you know? And sometimes it almost makes me feel like, am I making it up? Right? <laughs> but I'm not. And, and neither millions of other people. <laughs> and I mean, I think this is, it goes to another point. Many studies that do confirm, right? Even though, and I think this is kind of where the question goes is like, oftentimes what we're trying to observe in the natural world, there's, you know, I always call it the 3% rule in my practice, where there's like this little sprinkling on top where it's like, we can't really explain or observe this last 3%, but somehow this is happening. How, like, how do we move forward in science with that type of, you know, whether it's 1% or 0.001%, like, how do we fill the gap of like, we can prove from what's actually taking place and manifesting that this is happening, but you can't actually observe it. How do we fill that gap? Well, I think this is exactly where paradigm, paradigm awareness comes into play because really what we're dealing with is just extreme paradigmatic entrenchment, mm -hmm. right? Where they're trained in a particular paradigm. They're trained that only these things affect your health, nothing outside of them. And so if you say that something else is affecting your health that's not on the list of things that they learned or you know, is not treatable by a pharmaceutical, then you're crazy and you're making it up, right? And so that's the automatic default is like, if it doesn't fit in our version of the paradigm, the way that we've constructed it, you're making it up and that's just how it is. And so I think it, somehow we have to move to a place where doctors are becoming aware that, that they are in a paradigm and that it is limited. And I don't really know how you do that because it's so, it's just so strong, this entrenchment. And you know where we really see this is in dentistry. Oh, yeah. I've, I've had many a conversation where I'm like, why, why dentistry? Why, why is it somehow okay to put a known neurotoxin into people's mouths and tell them that it's not a toxin, that it's not going to affect them, that it's not leaching out into their bodies on a daily basis. And yet, this known neurotoxin has a global treaty in order to prevent its spread into the environment. It has new EPA regulations to pre prevent it from going into the wastewater in dental offices. But it's in your mouth. <laughs> but when it's in your mouth, it's totally fine. You know, her mom is a dentist, right? Yep. So she knows what she's talking about. I think just recently, did you do a live with your mom on this particular subject? I did. And she's been posting a lot of reels. She's blowing up on Instagram. Oh my God, now. this is awesome. So we'll make sure we link to that in the show notes. Her mom's also awesome. I'm a big fan. So 
I love both of these examples, right? Which are, again, if, and I love this, right? So when I was digging into a little bit about more about the scientific method, one of the kind of overarching themes was criticism is the backbone of the scientific method. Now, to me, it doesn't take much critical thinking to be like, wait, this doesn't make any sense at all. So again, I kind of go back to, you know, you're in the science field, I am not. So I'm going to ask the question the only way I know how to answer or know how to ask it. And you kind of answer it however you feel comfortable answering it. So my question is, typically, for somebody to be faced with so much evidence right in front of them, to deny that which they are actually physically having experiences themselves, to still default back to whatever they've been programmed to think or believe, requires some level of mental programming or priming. Mm -hmm. Does this play a role? And how prevalent do you think this is in like science and medical fields? I think it's extremely prevalent. I think there's a huge level of programming and you know, this cognitive entrenchment into particular ways of seeing and codified ways of thinking about things. And I'm not entirely sure where it comes from. You know, I think there, I think it builds really slowly over time because even the textbooks that you have in high school that teach you science start to train you in a particular way of thinking, a particular way of conceptualizing. And a lot of it comes in terms of the relationships between things. So you're, you're taught to see and identify really clear linear relationships and and believe that you can map an entire system through that type of relationship. But that's not really the way things work. They're extremely complex and multifaceted. And in order to actually see them, you have to really open your mind and, and be willing to sit with a lot of levels of actually not knowing what's really going on in order to have a, an accurate scope of the system. So arguably, you have to be able to be okay with not knowing everything and kind of stay consistent and calm while wading through the evidence that might not make sense yet, correct? Yeah. And that makes people really triggered and uncomfortable it because sure people want to know things right <laughs> away. We all want to control our outcomes. As you were talking about that, it made me think of something that I talked about at one of our past break lives. And you know what I'm about to say, I, I certainly have no evidence that this is true, but it definitely makes you think. So obviously, I have two babies. I have a one-year-old and a two-year-old. I also have two older kids. And a very common toy that you give a you know kind of like late infant, early toddler is a toy where you sort shapes, right? So you'll have like, these are the triangles, these are the squares, these are the circles. And what happens, right? They look at these sorting things where you're supposed to like match it up and drop it through the hole. And they're sitting there like trying to put a star in a circle. They're trying to put a square mm -hmm. in a triangle. And you're like, silly baby, you're not doing it right. I have often wondered if that is actually one of the first building blocks where they potentially are able to see more multidimensionally and they're not actually seeing the pure physical limitation. And we're kind of sitting there training them over time like, with negative stimulus, like nope, 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 until they start to match it correctly. And for what it's worth, I'm not saying that 
you know, having a very clear understanding of how this three-dimensional realm operates is important because obviously it's crucial. Mm -hmm. But I've often wondered if we actually program kids out of a more expansive thinking by forcing them into repetitive tasks like something like that. So do you think there's some level of priming that even exists in the earliest phases where we kind of stop considering all possibilities and start to already limit the scope of what we think is possible? Absolutely. There's so many practices and ways that we're taught in elementary school, I think especially is really dangerous for people, elementary school, where- I agree. I always <laughs> tell people like third grade, that's where it all goes down. Third grade, everything takes a turn. You know, it's such a, it's such a limited framework, right? This idea that teaching kids sort of discrete pieces of information is essential for their development it's not really teaching them how to think, it's just teaching them that they need to know certain things in the way that we've mapped them out that we think is really accurate. But it's not actually very accurate a lot of times. And you know, especially the version of it that you get in ele elementary school, it's this oh, very yeah. distilled, removed from the current trends of research version of things. And so it's it creates this illusion that the world is finite, that things can be mapped really clearly and definitively in simple formats. And I think the desire to replicate that through all spaces of science and study continues. And the reality of it is, is that we don't know what's going on with so many things still. <laughs> we just don't know. And I think that I've, I personally have just, through my own growth and different experiences that I've had, have learned to be really comfortable with that lack of certainty about anything that's happening. And In fact, when you don't have that, aren't you actually predisposed to bias? Like, if you are certain of something, can you actually move past that certainty? No, I don't think you can. So, I mean, that I feel like I, was, I woke up this morning thinking about that is that the reality is that if you are not open to constantly and perpetually having evidence in front of your face that goes against everything you ever believe and be open to receiving that and finding a way to fit it in, like you are inherently biased. Like mm -hmm. there's just no way out of that. Yeah, exactly. So how I mean, these are big problems that we're trying to solve here, y'all. Um, <laughs> What are some of the ways that you think looking back on it, some of us with kids can help break kids out of that way of thinking? I mean, obviously hmm. alternative schooling would be a part of it, but even there, I mean, I feel like you still end up having this seep in. What are some things that you can think of that would help a child expand their way of thinking? I think it's tricky, right? Because you, it's, going down this, this type of train of thought can be very overwhelming very quickly, right? When you acknowledge that we don't actually know so much and it's everything that we think we know we've actually constructed, that's a, a kind of an existential crisis, <laughs> right? So Everything we think we know we've actually just constructed, oh boy. That's like in break, we call that reality vertigo where you're like, no. Right, so. How do, you, how do you translate that in a way that's not overwhelming for kids, but that still gives them that sense of expansiveness uh, with which to see things? 
I think art is a great way to mm -hmm. approach that, right? Because it's a space where there's no right answer, um, which is in a lot of ways what's really going on. We, mm -hmm. don't, we don't know the right answer. We're seeking the right answer and we're continually improving upon our pursuit of that. But so if there's a space like art where you can explore and create ideas and generate different possibilities without those necessarily needing to be labeled as right or wrong, I think that's a really valuable practice for kids. And maybe also, you know, showing them more about the scientific process as, as young children, instead of just presenting it as a set of information that's exactly right, mm -hmm. we can show them experiments of where these like how to actually conduct it from. themselves. Yeah, yeah, and just how these pieces of information came to be. Because I think that's one thing that is often missing in education, even at higher levels. You know, you're given a textbook version of of what the reality of the situation yeah, what, is. What like the consensus is. Yeah, mm -hmm. but that's this very distilled version of things that's come down through, you know, each piece of information in a, in a biology textbook, for example, is probably hundreds of papers of research of studies that were done to verify that this is what it, how it works and this is exactly how it is. And it's kind of this model version of it. But if you were to just take one thing and, you know, kind of open the, the book of it and be like, okay, this is where this idea came from, and this is what it looks like when we're collecting these ideas. That might help to kind of create a sense that information is not as static as we've been taught to believe that it is. I think that's a pretty profound statement right there, because I think people do believe to some extent that information is static. Like once something is, then it is, and it can't then transform, evolve, or pivot down the road. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I know I do with my son, who's very inquisitive, is if he's asking why or how or how something works or how somebody would know that, I'm always very conscientious of sharing, well, this is what they say. What do you think? Or this is what they teach us. This is what I think, right? Because a lot of times I tend to be very much in opposition to what <laughs> they tell you. Oh, I'm like really? almost <laughs> shocking, so shocking. Um, so I'll kind of say like, hey, this is likely what you'd be taught in school. This is what I think, what do you think? Because to me, like this is still open, this is open for interpretation, buddy. Like you go for it, what do you think? So I always try to leave the door open for him to kind of either, you know, whether you're looking at it from a Christian perspective, like let Holy Spirit guide you into an answer, or you're looking at it just from like pure childlike imagination. I feel like sometimes if you leave that door open to a child to explain what they think, you can actually incentivize them to keep following that sort of breadcrumb trail rather than this is what it is. And I think sometimes as parents, if you believe that to be true, the answers you end up giving to your kids are actually very limiting and sound settled. Therefore, your kids don't feel that they can either add on, explore, or disprove. I always try to incentivize my kids to try to disprove. <laughs> why not? Right? Like, if, buddy, if you can come up with something better than that, like, you come back, you tell Do me. It. This is a true story. This is the kind of kids I'm raising. I was watching Kung Fu Panda. It's one of my favorite movies. I love Kung Fu Panda. And I'm sitting there watching Kung Fu Panda, and I'm watching this one scene, and in my mind, I'm not saying this out loud, in my mind, I'm like, 
I'm pretty sure I've never seen this scene before. And I was like, how is that possible? I've seen this movie so many times. And then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, Mandela effect. And literally as soon as I arrive at that thought in my head, Zev looks at me and he's like, mom, I don't think I've ever seen this scene before. And I was like, huh. He was like, timeline correction? I was like, you buddy. <laughs> he's nine. He knows what a Mandela effect is. But right, it just goes to show, right? If you were to look at it, right? A lot of people that are very much only operating in the physical natural world would be like coincidence, but it's a pretty odd coincidence that I'd be sitting there thinking like, I swear I've never seen this scene before. Meanwhile, my son's noticing the same thing. And then he's like, timeline correction. So I've, you know, I think my husband and I have really kind of gone out of our way to help our kids think beyond just the purely physical. So I think some of that is like you said, like artwork, some of that is imagination, play, helping them understand that, like you said, like, yeah, I'm an adult. Believe it or not, like adults don't know, no, don't know that much. <laughs> and I think that's something that I'm starting to still wrap my head around now at 37. It's like, you know, and it's perfect that you and I knew each other when we were like nine, 10 years old. When you looked at a 37 year old when you were nine, you'd be like, oh my God, they're an adult. Like they know all these things. I mean, I also had an inherent lack of trust for adults too, which I'm sure you did yeah, as well. Clearly. <laughs> but there still was this thing where it was like, you kind of look, to them to like, wow, like you're old. And then you become that age and then you're like, I still feel like a 10 year old that's somehow operating in a body that now has wrinkles. I'm like, this is very strange. Yeah, I definitely feel like a child most of the time. But don't you feel that that's actually part of the gift of why you're good at what you do is that kind of maintaining the childhood innocence and in how you're allowing things to grow and shift rather than be subtle? Yeah, I think it's essential, you know, because I think a lot of times we we believe that as adults we need to know everything and we need to be certain about the things we've done or the things we've said. And I, I've gone in the complete opposite direction, which is that I feel more uncertain about many things <laughs> than I ever have. And but I feel, uh, you know, comfortable with that. And I think that's the difference is that you know, as a child, you have an innocence and you have an ability to just stand in where you are and be okay with it to some extent. And you don't need to know everything in order to still be you. I love that. And it is very important. And I think if we look at the time and place we're in right now, one of the main things that seems to consistently be under attack through all spheres of life is really innocence. Like, kids don't really get to be kids anymore, be that through social media or a variety of different things that they might learn in school. There's this kind of like really limiting or even programming kids to think and act a certain way, whether it's through technology introduction and things like that, which I know we're gonna get to later in the episode. But I think for those of you listening, because I know we have a lot of parents at home, Continue to nourish your kids' innocence and curiosity. It is one of the easiest ways to help your child actually become a change maker in the future. If they get so overly structured and every answer you give them is like, this is the answer, don't question me, I'm an adult. Like, what kind of kids do you think you're gonna raise? And I will say that that's probably one of the reasons that I ended up the way I did. And knowing what I know about your mom, it's probably why you ended up the way you did. My parents actually embraced constructive arguing. In fact, I had to argue a lot. And it made me very much, I guess, comfortable with 
either not knowing or talking it through until I feel comfortable with where I've landed rather than ever looking to one person to give me an answer. I feel like my family very much did not program me to do that. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, it kind of was like a go figure it out. I'm not going to tell it. Go figure it out. Did you have any parenting like the go figure it out parenting? Not really. I had a very, you know, cuddly Jewish mom kind of parenting. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what my mom did do really well and that I think equipped me to stand in this way was that she believed in my perspective and mm. she would stand behind my perspective in all kinds of different situations. So when I questioned the thing about the apple and I heard the teachers talking about it, she went into the principal's office and was like, hey. Technically. She was right. (laughs) You know, and like she never believed what the doctors said about me. You know, she always believed me and believed my perspective. And so I think that's a really powerful thing is to, you know, even though your kids are small and they may not know as many worldly things as other people, they have a valid perspective anyway. Mm-hmm. And if you acknowledge that and stand with them in that, it will give them a lot of ability to question things later and think for themselves. It does, it definitely enhances confidence. In fact, arguably is one of the key factors in building confidence. And a lot of parents don't do that because they're afraid to be wrong or they somehow think that they're teaching their child to not be disrespectful. I, you know, in break method, we make it very clear one of the more important factors in parenting is obviously giving your kids structure and discipline in in very specific ways because that ultimately makes their brain feel safe. But making sure that they actually feel safe pushing against those structures. You want to raise a kid that is willing to, if they're invested in something, push against the boundary. If you raise a kid that's afraid to push against any of your boundaries, you're raising a people pleaser, you're raising a sheep, you're raising a child that is like more, much more likely to get you know, pushed into their victim narrative because they're so used to feeling powerless. So, I mean, in that way, your mom definitely empowered you to realize that your voice really does matter and that she's willing to back you up in pursuit of, of what your perspective is. Definitely. And she still does that. Yeah, she does. So I want to look at a couple of things. So I know we kind of briefly touched on this idea of spiritual, natural overlap in, in existence, I'll say, right? It's a large part of the work that I do in both break method and other kind of more like Christian spiritual teachings. When it comes to how you approach things, how how does one, because I have seen plenty actually teach and speak, how does one conduct scientific research, right, and think scientifically while also operating within a paradigm where you include the existence of God? Does that somehow alter or change the way you approach science? I think the place that I start from personally is this place of not knowing. Mm -hmm. And and that's true with how I think about God and how I think about sort of the ultimate reality that we're trying to describe with science. Mm -hmm. I think that at the deepest expression of both of those things, it's something that I don't know what it is exactly and I can never know what it is exactly because there's no way that I could conceptualize that level of multidimensionality or 
that level of complexity or just, you know, all of time. There's no way that I can conceptualize all of that within myself. So I begin by accepting both of those things as that my understanding of them will never be complete. Um, it will never be solidified and it will always be a mystery that's revealing itself to me. So for me, looking into the depth of what's going on in the biological space or with God involves a very similar process where I step aside to a large extent and look to see what's not already being shown. And I think with biology that, you know, there's the physical reality and there's there's levels to which we can see what's happening. So we can see that there's plants and we can see that there's an environment and we can see that there are people and species and then we've developed technology so that we can see that there are, those things are composed of smaller units like cells and we've increasingly developed technology that's allowing us to see more and more granular levels of those systems. But right now we can only see as far as the technology that we have developed to see. And I think that's a really important place to kind of pause and think about it is that our level of knowledge is limited by our, our technical, technological capacity to image it and to resolve it. And so there's this sort of physical limit. And then beyond that, there's this probing into the mystery and what could be revealed beyond that. So what you just described brings about maybe a hundred thousand questions okay. for me. But immediately what I started to think of is this kind of, it's almost like an irony is that we are limited in our pursuit of the sciences by our advancement in technology, yet if we're trying to seek out scientific advancement for the benefit of humanity, we have a relationship whereby if we create more technology, we actually potentially pose more of a threat or risk to humanity. Do you, <laughs> have you bumped into this sort of relationship? Yes. And how do you, how do you reconcile that? Like, is there, cause I, you know, to me, if I look at it, it's kind of like, does the benefit of one outweigh the risk of the other? And how, how do you think about that? And how do you, where do you land? It's a really important question. Um, I don't know exactly where I land yet. I think that's, you know, it's something that I've been thinking a lot about recently because I'm seeing that technologies are being developed. Um, you know, we're, we're in a technological revolution. And I think that that's something that we haven't, that a lot of people don't consciously think about really these days. But, you know, if you think about from the time when we were kids, when there were no smartphones and you had to use dial-up internet. <laughs> <laughs> and then it still doesn't work. Yeah. And, you know, there was nothing, there was no information and there were these really slow games. And then you look at what, where we're at now and the amount of information that people have access to and the computing speeds that are just on our phones. It's a huge change that's happened in a relatively short amount of time in terms of the whole scope of human history. And it's still going, right? That, that level of 
quick technological development is still underway, and it's now it's reaching a, a very, I think, precarious and um, important point where we have to pause and look very carefully at what is happening right now with the development of AI technology, with the kinds of changes that are being proposed in medical spaces and um, with the amount of information that we have access to, we are starting to cross thresholds that we may not be able to uncross once we go past them. Do you think that we haven't crossed it yet? Or are you unsure about that? It's <laughs> <laughs> a real question. Yeah. I, I don't think that we've crossed it yet. I think, I think that there are some things that are maybe on the edge, but I think that there are other things that I can imagine that are much worse than what we have now that don't exist yet. So do you, for example, like AI technology that in many different areas, different companies, different developers, right? Like it's not like this is just one person making one thing that's done this. It does seem that no matter who creates it, at some point AI itself shows some level of sentience, is that and could it ever actually be in the best interest of humankind? Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's a good idea to open that door. From the perspective of technology that benefits scientific research, which is arguably in some ways distinct and separate from the technology that we're describing, have they ever actually created true technology that allows us to understand more of the spiritual or energetic world? Or has that particular area of technology never really been a priority? Yeah, I don't think that that's been prioritized and it's definitely stigmatized, you know, to so, an extent. And I think this is really where I want to dive in and roll up sleeves, right? Because I can look at this surely from the perspective of being raised Jewish. I tell people all the time when you're raised Jewish, the idea of believing in Jesus is literally on par with believing in Santa Claus. And yet here we are and I'm a Christian. So when it comes to this sort of belief, it's pretty clear to me that also in scientific communities, there is this kind of stigma where it's like, it would be challenging to both be an academic and to be operating in scientific spaces. And I've, I've heard a bunch of people that do also identify with some sort of religious belief system struggle with how to kind of operate both simultaneously because there's this almost underlying belief that science somehow disproves the existence of God, which, I feel like at, in today's moment in time in 2023, I feel like actually the opposite has happened. I feel like it's actually proven that there's actually a whole lot that we don't know that cannot be explained through the physical. Has that been your experience? And why is it that it's still so widespread that there's this stigma that's almost like blocking people from being able to prioritize like, hey, we should figure out both. Where does this come from? I think it comes from the same place as these other things that we've been talking about, paradigmatic entrenchment and wanting to feel secure, you know, about your understanding of the world. If you admit that God is real and that 
there's this level of complexity and mystery that underlies everything, then we can never fully explain it. And so for some people, I think that's probably not a satisfying outlook or conclusion, right? They are seeking a level of security and a level of prestige by trying to explain what has not yet been explained in the right way. And perhaps this is a good way to think of it, and maybe this has happened in your research. At some point in research, in trying to prove one thing, do you ever get to a place where in pursuit of trying to prove that one thing, you realize that you've actually just opened the door to like a hundred other things that you didn't really consider? So in, in a way, you never actually land, like there's never actually a, an end point if you're actually conducting the research correctly. Yeah, I think there's this sort of endless list of questions. And as you go deeper and as you see more, you understand how to ask the next set of questions. And so it's this continual process always. And definitely each new vista that you encounter and you think you understand something, then there's just so many other ways to think and to see. Do you think, and I'm saying this in perspective of like looking out into the future, let's say that, you know, a parent is listening to this and their kid's really into the sciences. Do you think that where we are heading, there will be other other ways or other processes, educationally speaking, to jump into this sort of medicine or, or scientific research that kind of goes outside of the current process of education? Like, do you think that there needs to be some sort of shift out of the way that we're currently doing it? Like, do you think that the kind of process-oriented way that we're doing it right now is almost like inherently in conflict with the mindset that needs to be landed on as a scientist. What do you mean by process-oriented? So I guess the way I'm looking at it is for a lot of kids, it seems like the current system of education that you would go through to get a degree and to basically go into some field of science inherently predisposes you toward the things that we're all describing actually can become a stumbling block. Do you think that out into the future, humanity would benefit from finding an alternative solution to kind of, I guess like an alternative form of education toward the end goal of being a scientific researcher. Yeah, I definitely think that the, the way the training happens can be improved. Um, but I think it's, it's sort of hard for me to conceptualize how that improvement mm -hmm. would happen because there is so much foundational knowledge that you need in order to work in these spaces now. And it's, you know, it's, I would say it's increasing all the time. It's the fields are becoming increasingly complex and you have to know so many things just to be able to do one thing. And before when sort of the research was less developed and there was less technology involved, you could get away with knowing a narrower swath of things and still make a big impact. But mm -hmm. now you have to know so many things to do anything. And so because of that, you have to, ha you have to go through this process of, of learning many things and building them on top of each other. But 
that process does entrench you in a particular way of approaching everything, right? Because mm -hmm. all of your work is then derivative of what this, you've been what taught. you've been taught and how you've been taught to see it and how you've been taught to approach the problem. So I'm sure that there's a better way to do it, but I, I don't personally know what that is. Okay, fair enough. Hopefully, if you ever have any ideas, you let us know. All right. One of the things that I want to take a look at are, we know that there are trends that happen in our world with marketing, advertising, fashion, et cetera. When it comes to what research projects are funded or not funded, have you seen that there tend to also be trends in that arena? Mm -hmm. Yes, there are definitely trends in science. And in a way, I think this also can answer the last question that you just asked, which is that I think one improvement that can be made in both, both of these spaces is that people can be encouraged to really think about what kind of contribution they want to make um, and really take a look at what information and what science the world needs right now and direct their process towards that. And that's something that I've actively have been doing for a while now and you know, am in the process of sort of walking that out in a bigger way within my life is you know, really, really stepping back from the trends of science and kind of these trajectories that scientists go on and thinking, okay, where are we at as a collective? What information do we need to move into a better place together? And what steps need to be taken to generate that information? So when it comes to this particular topic, I completely agree with what you're saying. And I think one of the conversations that we had before we started rolling was there are only so many places to get funding, essentially, for the type of research that can actually make a big difference, right? There's, it's decently limited. So arguably, the way that the funding takes place and what projects or what, pro what research, what would you even call that? What's, what's being rewarded? or awarded? Grants. Grants, or... okay. So there's only so many grants and arguably the way that money is actually given out or awarded is not actually, it's not based on what humanity actually needs, it's what those organizations want to fund. Mm -hmm. So outside of your sphere, one of the things that we look at in this show is the relationship to financing and the manipulation of information. Whether these financing companies or organizations are doing this intentionally or unintentionally, that is not something that we're trying to look to right now. But if an organization is funding certain projects and not others, that could change where we go as a human collective. And I think that that is one of the easiest ways to understand why we have not really had any sort of technological advances in understanding like our, you know, both our spiritual intelligence, what's happening multidimensionally. I feel like none of that has really been prioritized both with research and with technology. Do you think that ultimately that has to do with where things are trending with AI, that that's just been kind of left off to the side? And if you look at it in retrospect, do you think that there was a moment in scientific research that you have learned about where things kind of took a sharp turn? 
Yeah, so the the funding mechanisms that are, maybe that was a lot of questions in one, maybe I'll However you want to attack it, it. yeah, break it up <laughs> however you want. Um, so in science, let's start there. In science, the way that research is funded in academia is that for the most part, in order to do any research project that you want to do, you have to write a grant for that project. You have to clearly map out what the things are that you want to look at, what methods you want to use to look at them, what resources you have available at your university, and you have to kind of make a case for the fact that this is a good project to do, it makes sense, you're gonna be able to actually do it, and you're gonna get the results that you think you're gonna get. You also usually have to include pilot data. So you kind of have to do a little bit of the experiment before anyway, just to get the grant. And once you go to apply for the grant, then there's oftentimes what are called study sections. And those are these topics that have sort of been mapped out by different funding institutions that they wanna prioritize. And so there's definitely a clear way in which research is being directed and prioritized into certain areas by different funding institutions. And you do need to fit into those categories. So that's one aspect of what's going on. And then in terms of where things changed, what I've observed, so I'm really into reading older uh, journal articles and older research papers. And I think a lot of times researchers don't take the time to do this or even read papers very thoroughly. I, I've just seen that a lot. People don't read the papers they're citing carefully. Um, but I've taken the time to track certain ideas through the literature to see how they develop because I was reading them and I just realized like this doesn't really make sense. And, and then I'll just follow the citation backwards all the way kind of to the 1950s or the 1960s and I'll see the original paper that that idea finally came from. And I'll look at the data and I'll just say, I don't agree with this conclusion and this whole field has been formed around it. Mm. And so as I had started doing that and I saw these things, I, I decided to sort of take a, a deeper look into the research of the 1950s and the 1960s in certain areas. And those papers are presented in a really different way than the current papers. People take their time to explain things. And um, in a way it's because you don't, like this thing that I was talking about before that in order to do research now you need to know so many things and so now all those things are shoved into one paper but before the experiments were simpler in a certain sense and what I noticed was that um, around the time that the genome was discovered the way that research was being conducted in molecular biology really started to shift and a lot of that was because the, so the central dogma, and this is what it's called, the central dogma of biology is that the genome is kind of responsible for everything, right? The, the, everything comes out of the genome. And when they finally found a way to ex like isolate the DNA and then start sequencing it, the field as a whole believed that they had found the thing that was going to reveal everything. Mm. And so all this emphasis was placed on sequencing the genome for years after it was discovered. And it was a whole project and it required a massive amount of money. And a lot of research that had been happening into more kind of 
I would say, artful approaches to looking at the cell in terms of biochemistry and pH were abandoned. Mm. And everything had to be looked at in terms of the genome instead. So there's a lot of chemistry going on in the cell. And that chemistry is responsible for a lot of things. Does that shift the paradigm mm -hmm. if you're starting to only think about it through the scope of the genome? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So it was a really big paradigmatic shift that happened. And in a way, I think it uh, reduced the complexity of things uh, in a manner that's not accurate. And so we, instead of sort of incorporating both things and being like, okay, all of this is important and we need to continue our pursuits in this direction as well, most of the funding and the energy shifted to mapping the genome because that was kind of the sexy research at the time, right? And then once they mapped all the genome, then it was like, okay, now we need to map all the proteins that are coded from the DNA. And so then that was the next big push. And then they mapped all the proteins, and then they still didn't understand everything that was happening. And they're like, oh, it doesn't, it's not, still not explaining it the way that we thought that it would. Is that when the field of epigenetics really popped up? Exactly. Yeah. And so then epigenetics came about, and okay, now we're gonna map everything in terms of epigenetics. Let's, we have to understand the epigenetic marker for everything. We have to understand how gene expression changes in every situation, and then we'll understand everything. And it turns out that's still not the case. There's now another layer of mechanism that's being revealed of intracellular phase transitions that most people don't know about. And this turns out is regulating a lot of things in a very mysterious and kind of messy way. Um, and so what all of these uh, forays did essentially was they created massive data sets. And I think that that's like, just a huge shift that you kind of have to take a moment to look at because the moment that you have, you know, thousands of things to look at at once, you need a way to process that information. You need a way to store that information. You need a way to make sense of that information. And that's where a lot of computing energy has really come in. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's where AI comes in also because you use sort of more, um, coarse versions of artificial intelligence technology to sort between things and data sets. You create these machine learning things. And so that helps you sort out some of this information. And so I think collectively this shift into what's called big data has also given rise to this you know, idea of using artificial intelligence to sort through that big data. You know, It's created a need for it, supposedly. So, so I think that these things have come, come together hand in hand. And for me, the question is, is, you know, do we really need all of that information, right? Like, do we need all of this information that we've generated? Or are we just generating information about things that we can't necessarily use and it's not necessarily directed at doing something specific? Specifically regarding epigenetics, much of the research in the field of epigenetics, it's in many ways just posed many more questions than actually given answers, correct? Like epigenetics as a field, essentially from everything that I've looked into with it, at least from my perspective, seems to have at least some tentacle into the spirit realm that leaves it a little bit open to be like, we know all of this, but it seems like of all the fields, 
that are emerging epigenetics seems to have a a butt attached to it? Uh, I don't know if I would say that. I think, I mean, I, I haven't looked at epigenetics in a while, so mm -hmm. I'm hesitant to make any big statements about it. But it definitely has answered some questions. And I think uh, more than I understand that it's answering questions, but how it actually functions, I feel like, is the area that feels like it's posed more questions. Like, we understand that, you know, decisions of multiple generations back are actually affecting what markers are turned on and off. But how that happens, do you feel that that has been landed on through the field of epigenetics? Well, I think there's a lot of chemistry involved in it. Um, and the way that the epigenetic marks are regulated is has a lot of, of chemistry and a lot of, um, there's a lot of chemistry. And I am not really equipped to explain it all at this particular mm -hmm. moment, but I do see what you're saying. Like there, is, there is a certain level of mystery involved, and I think, but I think that that's true for so many areas of cellular biology already, mm -hmm. because you're dealing with this environment that's very dynamic. It's always changing. Every instance of the cell that it exists is unique, and there's so many biomolecules at play that are creating this unique chemical interface where all these things take place. And epigenetics is one aspect of it. But for example, this liquid phase transitions that I mentioned mm -hmm. before is also another aspect of that. And it could be considered now an epigenetic mechanism as well. But it's acting in a very different way where the way that these phase, so I'm gonna, is it okay if I explain this a little bit? Yeah, totally, go for it. So the way that we conceptualize cells usually is that there's the nucleus, which is in the middle, which contains all of the genetic material. And then there's the cell wall, which contains everything that's in the cell. And the space in between the nucleus and the cell wall is called the cytosol. And a lot of times that's conceptualized as this liquid soup that mm -hmm. you know doesn't really have any level of importance. But it turns out that there's all these biomolecules that are packed in that space. And a lot of what's packed in there is RNA. Mm -hmm. And so RNA is what, what's made when the genome is copied and the RNA gets exported from the nucleus and then the RNA is used to make a protein. And so usually the RNA is just headed towards making a protein. But it turns out there's tons of RNA that's just never made into proteins. And there's highly, what are called highly disordered regions in these things that cause them to have certain chemical affinity to other disordered regions of other RNAs or to other proteins. And they end up kind of grouping together and demixing from the bulk environment. And so it's kind of like when you have oil and vinegar and you get little droplets of vinegar in the oil, that's what's happening inside the cell. And one of the things that these, it turns out these are doing many things, these phase transitions that are demixing. But one of the things that they're doing is that they're uh, demixing RNA from the bulk. And they're actually preventing it from being coded into proteins. Okay. And that's, an, in terms of what the definition is of epigenetics, that could be considered an epigenetic mechanism. Mm -hmm. So, because you're regulating the expression of the DNA sort of after the fact of the DNA mm -hmm. itself. Um, and that's super mysterious. Well, and is the process that you just described, is that 
tied to the field that you were stating that in the 50s and 60s kind of just got pushed off to the side? Or is that a completely different field of study? Yeah, it's definitely related to that. Mm -hmm. So I'll put that on my list to do a deep dive and follow some other rabbit holes on what might have been responsible for something like that. I think one of the things that I want to get us to in the effort of being mindful of the timing of the episode is obviously over the last two years, everyone heard this phrase multiple times, the science is settled, the science is settled. Do you believe that science, at least with what we have available to us right now and the minds that you have to be in as a scientific researcher, do you believe that science can ever be settled? No. And do you think that if somebody believes that it can be settled, they're ultimately operating under some sort of bias that will potentially inhibit their results? Yes. So when we look at where we go next, because I think we're facing a variety of problems in the moment in time we're in right now, right? One of them is this kind of proliferation of technology, which I recognize holds keys for some scientific research, but as we mentioned previously, potentially also puts humanity at large at risk. Do you think that there are other concerns outside of the scope of technology that you have in the field of scientific research that should be focused on right now for us to move forward as humanity? Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that we need to turn our attention to is ecosystem remediation and how to go about that in an effective way. Um, you know, there's been so much contamination of the environment. It's kind of mind-blowing, and it's still going on. Especially as the last couple of weeks. <laughs> as we've seen. Um, and, you know, the truth about that is... I think that there's, again, so much we don't know, mm -hmm. even about how to do that properly. And I think that that's one area where if we needed more information and more people working on it, that would be really helpful because that's something that we do need to take care of. You know, there's many toxicants that will persist and they are affecting us whether that is being acknowledged or not. So looking at that field of study, for people that don't have the terminology. It's basically like a way to clean up what environmental pollution is doing in both like air, water, all the rest of it, right? So remediation is just kind of healing, bringing back to a state of balance, removing anything that's bad, correct? Yes. So if we look at the way the like environment as a whole is talked about right now, do you think there's some level of kind of like look here, not there, when really like the area that we're not looking is probably the area that should be prioritized? Yeah, I do. I think I think there's there's a lot of emphasis on climate, for mm -hmm. example. And you know, I think that's valid to some extent, but also to me this the toxins require so much attention right now and they're affecting reproduction, you know, in all kinds of species, including humans. And when you think about survival on a planet, that's something that needs to be safeguarded. <laughs> You're like, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. Yes, so we do need to safeguard humankind. But believe me, I believe that we do. It 
just seems that there's so many areas that eventually coincide with this idea that ultimately we're for whatever reason we are not prioritizing the science that actually would really move us forward as a collective we are not prioritizing the science that actually would help the environment start to get cleaned up so we're not so devastated by it physically I'll leave it to you guys at home to start to dig in those rabbit holes because stuff like that gets Alexander into trouble. So on a future episode without Alexander present, we'll go doing some digging and we'll let Alexander remain a scientist who's always open to new ideas. I think it is alarming that there are so many of these pieces that seem to be coinciding at this moment in time and to me, I always believe that absolute power corrupts absolutely. And no matter what, one of the things that I believe would need to change is that whoever's operating the capital for the financial institutions that are ultimately funding projects, there's no way right now for that to be unbiased and to only be for the benefit of humanity. So I think there's so many things from regulatory bodies to policymaking bodies and financial institutions that so much of it is just, it's impossible for it not to be corrupt at this point. So I think one of the things that I really feel is important is that we need to be able to, and I know this has been part of a conversation you and I have had, there need to be people that start really intentionally privately funding research that truly is for the benefit of humanity. Are there people doing this? And how do people like you that actually want to move the needle forward for humankind, how do people like you actually go out there and change the world? Like, what can the rest of us do to help people like you do what's best for us? Yeah, that's a great question, because so much of the money is going towards things that just support these older frameworks and older ways of looking. And, and what ends up happening is, is that people that have a vision can't really figure out how to move it in motion and and because of that people aren't really encouraged to have this type of vision you know it's considered too idealistic um but i am very idealistic and i will um i will commit to being that way moving forward even more because i think we're at a pivotal moment and so what people can do is if you have a lot of money and you're looking for what to do you can create a scientific foundation that supports projects that are intended to help humanity live on this planet and make life sustainable on this planet instead of on another planet. And so, without merging with AI. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think I think there's 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 a lack of emphasis on prioritizing the natural order of things and learning how to optimize the natural order, how to, how to optimize our biology and our physiology and our detoxification pathways and you know, our environment in a way that is balanced and that is good for people and the environment. And I think we need people that want to support that, that want to support technologies that have heart in them that have the intentionality to move things forward in a balanced, aware, conscious way. Um, so if there's people that 
want to create a foundation or fund individual scientists, I think opening the door for that can create massive amounts of change in the world right now. I thought that I'd found an organization like that back in probably 2015 or 16. And I got invited to an event that they were doing. And obviously, I'm not going to name the foundation. But I got there. And the opening talk of the whole thing was the guy that founded this company that like the idea behind it sounded like it was going to be great and it was going to alleviate some of the bias and the very opening conversation was basically about how all of our kids are going to have ai chips and we basically just need to deal with it and as the ruling class we all just had to like be at the forefront and i was like bye i'm out of here wow. i actually was in the back of the room just like i am horrified for humanity at the time, I also had one of my um, best friends with me who's since passed away. Um, but for those of you that know Sam Isadora, imagine Sami next to me, who's like a super radical feminist, like just wild person. And in the middle of the room, right? Like just imagine all these people, super fancy schmancy. She stands up and she's like, oh, and you're telling that we send bleep-shaped spacecraft in into space she's like you guys you guys are all completely backward and she you know it rhymes with rick is the word that she used rick rhyming shaped spacecraft <laughs> into space and she got up and was just like i'm walking out of here this is bull beep and i did too because at that point if someone's basically just taking that position like it's a wrap we're merging with ai you're either going to get on board or you're going to be left behind I get that they are in control of a lot of money from a very heart-centered perspective. I am asking those of you that are watching today, if you have money and you don't know what to do with it, take people like that out. Not like this way, but like financially, get out there and start funding people from a heart-centered space because every time it looks like somebody's gonna come out and, and do this the right way, they end up right back in the agenda in my experience and that's a very scary place to be because it's, you know, I believe personally that we've crossed a threshold that we can't come back from. I know you're a little bit more optimistic in your view, which that's great. <laughs> you maintain that optimism, girl. Um, when we're looking at something like that, we need people out there fighting the good fight. And one of the things that came to me as you were talking is this idea that not all technology has to use artificial intelligence. And to me, I actually feel like that might be one of the measuring sticks of how we move forward next is this, it's almost merged into this idea of like, you can't expand technology without putting some sort of machine learning in it. And like, perhaps to some extent that's true, but it can't be true for all things. Like to, I would imagine again, obviously clearly not a scientist here, but in an effort to try to like photograph or observe multi-dimensional things, I can't imagine why you would have to have an artificial intelligence component for something like that. So do you think that there is a way to expand technology without it being an artificial intelligence component that we're not doing right now? Absolutely. I think there's so much I think there are so many vistas of technology that we have yet to even tap into because we're so focused on looking at it in this one particular way yeah. through artificial intelligence. I'm deciding if I'm gonna go there, I am. Just go there, do it, do <laughs> it, do it. 
I think that crystals are an amazing space of technology that has not been explored fully. And it's something that I've looked into a lot and I wish I had a lab where I could dive into that, where I had the resources to look at that technology in another way because I think that there's so much capacity there for moving energy through systems and um, creating ways of interacting with systems that doesn't require chemicals, mm. you know, and it doesn't require artificial intelligence. And I think that there's, you know, a whole language essentially of frequency space that we haven't even touched upon what can be developed. And so that's something I would like to move into eventually. So we're going to need people to write in and fund Alexandra's research. If you or any of your friends have money to fund our dear friend Alexandra, she actually could change the world. So I want to make sure that we all do our part in supporting her. I thank want you. to thank you for subjecting yourself to this sort of questioning. I know from the position of a scientist, it can be tough to kind of manage your reputation and everything that you've worked hard to uphold with integrity in your career. And I appreciate your openness and trying to have some of these bigger conversations. And I think my desire is that people like you getting out there and actually sharing these perspectives hopefully will inspire other people in your field to realize that you can actually take a step slightly outside and not be harmed, not be canceled. And that's really what we need more people to do is to say, hey, I, I don't think we're going in the right direction and I want to be the one to do something about it. So I'm grateful that you're actually willing to do something about it and speak openly to us. I'm sure that Alexander is going to produce a ton of great content. How can people follow you online? Uh, you can follow me on Instagram at Riverwind Lab. And you can also follow me on YouTube. And it's how do you spell your Instagram handle? It's R-I-V-E-R-W-Y-N-L-A-B. Okay. And, and where else can we find you? I'm starting a Substack and Sweet. a podcast soon. So there'll be lots of things coming in the near future. We will make sure to link to all those in the show notes. Thank you so much for coming on. I also, from watching you give my daughter Sarai a little science lesson yesterday, also hope that somehow you create something to inspire young scientific minds. I kind of got a flash of it while you were doing it yesterday. So planting that seed. Yeah, that was such a beautiful moment watching her understand something that she hadn't. She was so into it. And I definitely want, will be doing that as well in the future. And I just want to really thank you, Busy, for all the work that you're doing and just how much you've inspired me to step into my power and step into really walking out this mission and this vision with clarity and conviction. I absolutely believe in you and I know you're going to do big things. So thank you for coming on the show. Y'all, that's a wrap. Modern Good, episode 15, out.